Lord, God, we praise you. We thank you for your faithfulness. Lord, for your goodness and kindness to us. That, uh, Lord, we're gathered here to worship you, to praise you. Would you set our hearts right towards you? God, we desire to be conformed more to the image of Christ. We want to be more like Jesus today through your word. So, Lord, would your spirit move in our hearts to draw us to Jesus. In your name, Lord, we pray. Amen. Okay, as Bevan said, our campaign is called The Table. We've been talking about this for a good bit now. And this is my last sermon in this campaign. Uh, as we talk about the table, we've been talking about it from the like, Christian churchy perspective of coming to the Lord's Supper together and participating, partaking of the Lord's Supper together as a church. So we spent the first few weeks kind of unpacking that and what it means in Luke chapter 22 where Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. The last few weeks we've talked about unity and how the communion or the Lord's Supper, it's to be this unifying factor of what we as the church unify around. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul uh, talks about that and how the church wasn't really unified. And so they weren't taking the Lord's Supper, he says. What you're doing is something different. Like You may think you are, but you're not, because you're so disunified as a community. And then in John 17, which is John's account of uh, Jesus at the Last Supper with his disciples where he institutes the Lord's Supper, he prays for the unity of the church and those who will believe uh, the message of the apostles, which includes us. So this was very important to the early church is unity and communion, and what it all symbolizes is incredibly important for us as the church community together today. Today we're going to switch gears just a bit, and we're going to talk about the broader cultural symbol of a table. When we think about a table, what we find, or at least what I think of in a table, is a symbol of hospitality. When you invite somebody into your home, into your space, oftentimes what you're doing is inviting them over for a meal. I love to eat, and so like when we share a meal together, it's one of those times to just sit face-to-face, our... our uh, our soul care night is going to be on incarnate community and how we need this like face-to-face interaction in our digital world. When you share a meal together around a table, <clears throat> you have that opportunity to sit across from one another. It's one of the most intimate spaces in our home. It's where we have some of our best conversations is around the breakfast table, around the dinner table. Around the breakfast table is where we do our devotionals with the children and the kids and we, we talk about important things. And then the dinner table, we try to prioritize having dinner together so that we can have these face-to-face conversations. And we do, we do a lot of, talk about a lot of weird stuff at the dinner table. But we also do uh, every day, <laughs> we do high-low buffalo, <laughs> we call it, where the kids tell us they're high for the day, they tell us they're low for the day, and they tell us they're buffalo moment, anything kind of funny, silly, quirky that happened to them. So we have tried to engage and spark in some of these uh, face-to-face, close conversations around the table. So the table symbolizes hospitality, community, and sharing together. Now, we have to kind of fill in around our concept of hospitality. So we mentioned hospitality being in the culture that we are, something we, we get a picture in our mind, something kind of comes to our mind of what hospitality means. The, the uh, Greco-Roman concept and the Hebrew concept is slightly different. We have to kind of pack, pack in around our concept of hospitality with the Greek concept of hospitality and how the apostles are using it in the early church. So I don't normally do this, but we're going we're gonna to get into the weeds with some Greek, all right? 
Okay, so hospitality in the Greek language is philoxenos, is how we say it. Um, it's two words, smashed into one, I'm forgetting what that's called, but whatever. Xenos, uh, it means pertaining to being unfamiliar because of something unknown. So it's most often translated foreigner, stranger, or just something unfamiliar to you when it's referring to a person. Philos is a word that we're familiar with to a degree because of Philadelphia, city of brotherly love, right? So it means friend, and in the noun form, in the verb form, it means love. And so when we kind of smash those two words together, what we get in pretty much every, every use that's translated hospitality in the New Testament is this word. So when we smash them together, what we get is someone who uh, loves and cares for strangers or a friend to foreigners, okay? See, that's even alliterated for you, a friend to foreigners. Oh, man. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so when we think of that, that kind of, it broadens out our understanding of what the term means. So it's not just hospitality of like, oh, yeah, I like to invite my friends and family over, right? It's welcoming people who you don't really know all that well into your home. And in the ancient world, this was really, really more important than it is today uh, because they couldn't just hop in an airplane and fly halfway across the world in a day, right? Uh, travel was much slower. It was much more tedious. And so it was really incredibly helpful. They, they had inns and stuff, as the story of Jesus says. But most often when you would travel on these long journeys, you'd, you'd stay with people in the cities as you went from city to city because traveling is long and hard and challenging, and so you look for people to stay with. And it was super important in the early church, how the message of the gospel would spread. Paul and the other apostles, they would travel from city to city, and they would stay with people in the church and stay at their homes. So they required hospitality for the gospel message to spread throughout the Roman world. In the Old Testament law, hospitality was required of the people of Israel, they were required to treat foreigners and sojourners among them with kindness and love for two reasons. One, the scripture often repeats because you were foreigners. You were strangers in Egypt. And you remember how they treated you. <laughs> they enslaved you. They were awful to you. So now that you have your own nation, don't go returning the favor. Right? That's not to be the way you're supposed to behave. You're supposed to be welcoming and care for the strangers and sojourners among you. And second, the second reason that the Old Testament gives is simply that it's a part of God's character, that God loves and cares for foreigners and strangers. Deuteronomy 10.18 says, He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. Fatherless and the widow, the foreigner, the stranger, the sojourner, they're among the most vulnerable people in society in the ancient world. They're easy to exploit, easy to take advantage of, to get something out of them. And it's clear through Scripture and God's character that he despises when people exploit or take advantage of those who are in a vulnerable position. Instead, the people of God, the people of Israel, are to care provide for, support the foreigners and the sojourners 
among them. It's not just an Old Testament imperative. It is a New Testament imperative as well. There are a number of New Testament texts that specifically say, be hospitable. <laughs> Show hospitality. 1 Peter 4, 9, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Romans 12, 13, share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. It just says it plainly. <laughs> Practice hospitality. This is to be a part of the new community of God's people. Hebrews 13, Hebrews 13, 2, do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it, the author of Hebrews says. Now, the last part of that, don't get hung up on that. It's a little bit unclear if he knows of certain instances to his audience where they had entertained angels, perhaps, or if he's referring to the Old Testament story of Lot. Jesus himself was the recipient of a lot of hospitality throughout his earthly ministry, if you remember from the stories in the Gospels, he eats with uh, tax collectors who were despised in their culture. When they invite him over, Jesus attends. And even the story of Zacchaeus, Jesus approaches Zacchaeus and says, hey, I'm eating at your house today. So he intentionally goes to the house of a tax collector and sinner, and that irks the Pharisees a little bit. But Jesus didn't just eat with tax collectors and sinners, he also ate with Pharisees. And he accepted their hospitality as well. There's one story where Jesus eats in the home of Simon, the Pharisee. And when he does that, and they have this great dialogue and conversation together, this woman comes in and she uh, pours oil on Jesus. And she washes his feet with her tears. And the text says that she was a woman who lived a sinful lifestyle. We don't know what that means. But Simon's like, when, Jesus, do you know who's, do you know who's like, this close to you? His assumption is that you're, uh, if you're really a rabbi and a good teacher, you'll know, and you'll keep her at arm's length, and you won't allow her to do that. And Jesus says, yeah, I know who she is and what she's done, basically. And he says, she's been forgiven much, and so she loves much. And he kind of flips it on Simon, and he says, Simon, you've been a pretty good dude your whole life, but you don't appreciate the grace and mercy of God like she does, even though... He needs it just as much as she does. So these epic, wonderful conversations and formational times happen around the table of Jesus' ministry, where he accepts the hospitality of others. The story of Mary and Martha. That story begins with Martha inviting Jesus, welcoming him into her home. Ultimately, so there's all of those stories that we could go to, <laughs> but ultimately I think what's most helpful for us in reflecting on hospitality is God's hospitality towards us. So when we sit and ponder and reflect on God's hospitality towards us, remember, not just inviting friends and family over for dinner, but welcoming foreigners and strangers into your home. When we reflect on that, that's the language Paul uses here in Ephesians 2. In the book of Ephesians, the apostle Paul's primary theme or driving message is the unity of the church between the Jews and the Gentiles. Now, in this culture, if you were a first century uh, a Jewish person, your theology was such that you were supposed to kind of stay away from Gentiles. So, mostly because of the dietary laws. So, they ate food that was unclean, and so to enter into their home and to share a meal together at the table with them was a no-no, and that would make you unclean. So if you even traveled through a Gentile territory, when you returned to Jerusalem or returned to Israel, you would have to go through an eight-day ceremonial cleansing process. 
because of mostly the food that they ate was unclean. And so to be among them or to be close to them, to share a meal with them, makes you unclean. What does that do to your psyche, right? When you think about that, viewing basically every other group of people other than your people as unclean. And now in the church, they are supposed to be one together. When their entire life they'd grown up with this perspective of like, we need to isolate in order to stay holy. Now, Jesus has made even the Gentiles clean and brought them into the same community together. This was a challenge. If you grew up in the Jewish tradition and now all of a sudden you're supposed to be attending church together, be united with and being one together with people that just a few weeks ago you were trying to avoid. Now all of a sudden you're supposed to be one. And so Paul writes the entire book kind of to to bridge this divide and to bring the two of them together. And he does so with the theology that is so rich and so compelling. Ephesians 2, beginning here in verse 11, he says, Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles, he's just gone through like the heart of the gospel of Jesus' salvation that he's brought us by grace through faith. Therefore, because of the salvation that Jesus has brought us, here's what you should do. Remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that would be the Jewish tradition, which is done in the body by human hands. We're just going to keep reading. If you want more explanation, ask your parents. Okay. Uh, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ. Notice the language Paul uses. Separate. So with our hospitality reference, foreigner, stranger, alien, right? You were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel. He's talking to the Gentiles. And foreigners to the covenants of the promise. Saying, you guys weren't a part of the covenant people of God's promises to the Israelites. You don't have that. But, so this is where you were. You were without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus... You who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Okay, so now unless you're an Orthodox Jew, like this is us. It's talking about us. We're all Gentiles in the Jewish mind. You have been brought near. You were a foreigner. You were a stranger. But because of Christ and the cross and communion, which we're remembering the cross, you who are far away have been brought near. You've been brought to God. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. So like Christians are no longer under the dietary laws and regulations of the Old Testament, which were the dividing walls, which largely separated us, or the Jews from the Gentiles, we're no longer uh, under obligation to to that law. So... Christ has broken it down in himself. So now we can be united and we can be one together. His purpose in doing so was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body, it's Paul's favorite reference for the church, one body, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to you to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. So both Jews and Gentiles, now they're 
come to God, they have access to God through Jesus and the Spirit of God. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers. Okay, this is, again, directed to all of us as Gentile Christians, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Okay, so he takes it a step further from the national perspective of, okay, now you're citizens of God's people. You're a part of the Jewish family, or part of the Jewish community, and also you're members of God's household. So it's not only this language of hospitality and like welcome, come share uh, in our space of the nation and around our table together. No, God's adopted you. Like that's a, that's a step further. God said, no, like you're not just welcome in my home. Like come be a part of my family. That's a step further than just hospitality and welcoming people in. He says, no, you're members of the household now. You're an heir with Christ built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. So now he's referring to a building metaphor. <laughs> he uses the body metaphor and also a building metaphor, that we are all like different bricks in the side wall here, making up a building together with Christ himself as the most important chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So elsewhere, Paul talks about how we as individuals are temples of the Holy Spirit in our body. And so we should live ethically. But here he's saying we collectively, as a community, are where the Holy Spirit dwells among us. And again, this, this whole text points us back to the unity theme. And how we need to be united as a church. in this deep mystery that we collectively share in the Holy Spirit of God dwelling among us. And we're all like this temple built together with God's presence, God's spirit dwelling among us. And it's all a work of Christ who has saved us and redeemed us. Band, you guys can come and get set up here. So our big idea is super simple, all right? We went through those uh, New Testament imperatives, the Old Testament scriptures a little bit. We'll go through them more in depth in the devotional this week if you would like to go through it further. But we've all been recipients of God's hospitality. And even further, we've been adopted into God's family as members of his household. We've all been recipients of God's hospitality. And so we ought to be hospitable as well. hey yo. So like when, we <laughs> like when we think of God's grace and mercy throughout Scripture, we, the, the biblical authors constantly point us back to God's character and say, because of God's character, this is how you should live. Like you should imitate God in these things. This is something that we are called to imitate God in, is in our hospitality and our welcome of strangers. So let's pray. We'll sing praises to our Savior, and then I'll come back up and apply it. Lord, God, we thank you. For Jesus, for the revelation that, God, you want us at your table. God, not just your hospitality and welcoming us in, but adopting us into your family. Lord, you have taken it a step further. You brought us into your people when we were not your people, when we were far from the covenant and the promise, when, Lord, we were without hope and without God in the world. You have adopted us and brought us in. Lord, give us a picture of the hopelessness of being outside of your family. 
of being lost so that, Lord, we would appreciate your grace and your mercy and your adoption. We would appreciate the greatness of your hospitality, of your love that you have given to us. And so, Lord, we thank you for the saving work of Jesus that brings us into your family. It's in your name, Lord, we pray. Amen. All right, our big idea again is super simple. As recipients of God's hospitality, we ought to be hospitable as well, ourselves. We're going to start with the second part of that phrase, and then we'll kind of rewind and go back to the first part. We're going to start with our hospitality and how when, because of God's hospitality, we should be hospitable as well. So remember, the Greek word for hospitality is like a friend of foreigners or one who loves and cares for strangers. And so this ought to be kind of our disposition and our heart towards those whom we are unfamiliar with, those we don't know all that well, should be one of love and care and hospitality. So when we meet somebody who's different from us, from a different country perhaps, from a different culture, different demographic even, or different age group, what's our heart's response? That's the big question. What's, what is your like, innate gut response? Is it like fear and isolation? Or is it welcome and hospitality? That's at the heart of what to reflect on here. Is, 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 is our hearts geared towards hospitality in the way of Jesus or towards isolation and pushing away folks who are different than us? We need to have the posture of the Good Samaritan. Jesus tells this parable of the Good Samaritan to really kind of get at his, the Jewish community. He makes the Samaritan the hero of the story, and Jews and Samaritans didn't get along well together. When this guy, the Samaritan, comes across somebody, a Jewish man presumably, who has been beaten and left for dead on the side of the road, though, uh, though a Levite and a priest have both passed him by, it's the Samaritan who comes and takes care of him and shows him hospitality. He takes him to an inn and he pays for him to stay there, to be cared for, for the rest of his recovery. He puts him on his own donkey. It was costly to himself, but he showed this stranger, this foreigner, who his culture, everything in his culture had pointed him to despise this man. And yet, he's hospitable. He shows him welcome, kindness. Now, there's lots of implications to this, right? We're going to go through a few of them. One is are the, the culture war stuff that's raging on in our culture right now. Things like racial reconciliation, things like immigration and refugees. Now, I'm not going to advocate for one policy over another because these are, these are complicated issues, right, where we have rule of law to be involved in, which for Christians, following the law is important as well. And how do we blend these things together? That's open to a lot of uh, Christians to think through and to come to different conclusions on, and that's fine. But in our calculus has to be God's heart for hospitality. It has to be God's heart for welcoming foreigners and strangers and people who are different from us. So in some capacity, that has to be a part of how we think through these issues. 
because it's so clear throughout all of Scripture, even in the Old Testament, which again was a very isolationist community to preserve the way of God among the people of Israel. And it was good. But even within the Old Testament law of Moses, which was pretty, pretty set on holiness, part of the law was to welcome and to care for foreigners, sojourners, and strangers. So it's written all throughout Scripture. So it has to be a part of our calculus when it comes to our political approach as well. Moreover, in a different setting, hospitality, sharing a meal together is such a great setting for discipleship and spiritual growth. Again, how many of Jesus' most notable comments and conversations? <laughs> I came to seek and save the lost. The, it's not the healthy who are in need of a doctor, but the sick, as Jesus says. The, those comments happen around a table of tax collectors and his conversation with the woman, the sinful woman who is weeping and washing his feet happens around the table of a Pharisee. His conversation with Mary and Martha. Zacchaeus. Some of the most notable moments in Jesus' life happen around the table. And as our world becomes increasingly more and more digital, which I'm not going to rant and rave about that. It's happening, right? As we become more and more digital and we have more and more efficient ways of communication, we can really miss this mode of discipleship, of incarnate community, as we're going to talk about on Soul Care Night, of sitting across from one another, which the table is such a good representation of, sitting across from one another face-to-face, asking each other good questions, getting to know one another, diving into each other's lives. It's so vitally important. And if we opt for the more convenient methods of communication only, we miss this mode of discipleship that Jesus modeled and that Jesus lived so well. We moved into a new house over the summer uh, in June of last year, I guess. And when we first walked through the house, we noticed that uh, the dining room was not set for a dining room. When we walked into the dining room, it was set as a TV room when it was quite clearly meant to be a dining room. There's space for a big old table. There's one big light fixture in the middle. So they, they had reorganized it. The former owners had reorganized it to be another TV room. And then you keep walking through the house, and the den, which I just then learned was a room in a house. Somebody said it, and I'm like, what is that? What are you talking about? Apparently, it's another room. It's like another living room. Who knew, right? Uh, we went to the den, and... In that room was another TV room with more couches set up. And then we went into the living room, and in the living room was the computer room where they had a, a, what looked like a very powerful computer and gaming system. And it just clicked with me as we were walking through the house that uh, the former owners didn't have a value of hospitality because there was no large space to gather around a table. And everything was set around TV screens. There wasn't places to sit and converse face-to-face. And that's, I think, symptomatic of our culture, where everything is becoming so digital, and we can... (laughs) There are times in my family life where we're guilty of this, right? Where, like, each person in the family is watching something different on our own (laughs) screens, and there just isn't... There isn't as much of a value of just gathering together around common spaces. The table is such a great, powerful symbol of how we can incorporate that into our family values. 
we as a church, what we're trying to do is move towards thinking of discipleship or spiritual formation less in the sphere of like a classroom or an academic setting. So when we think of spiritual growth and formation, we tend to move first and foremost to like a classroom model of education where that's what's happening here, right? It's vitally important. You guys are all listening to me talk, right? And it's vitally important for our spiritual growth and formation to gather together, to hear sermons, to praise God together. Those things are important, but that's not all that there is to our spiritual formation. So when you think of how you were formed and the values that were formed in you as a child, school was a part of that, but it wasn't the most formative for you. Your home was. Your home was the most formative setting for you. And it's the same in our church, for our spiritual formation and our spiritual growth. So we need to incorporate both, the, the formal, official, like teaching classroom setting, but not neglect the home setting of formation as well. And that's, I think, what we've been missing a lot in the church, is the opportunity to know one another on a closer level, sharing a meal together around a table, which that symbolizes and represents, and joining together to know one another more deeply and to help grow into the image of Christ together. So we want to think of discipleship, spiritual formation, as not just in the classroom, but a home setting as well. And the table is a powerful symbol of that. And this is something that I think our, our church does pretty well, in large part. I'm preaching to the choir here in a lot of ways. If you're not familiar with the welcome of our church family, my prayer for you is that you'll get to know that more and more. And even in the Greek definition of it, which we talked about earlier, of welcoming foreigners and strangers or people who you're unfamiliar with into your home. We support safe families, and a lot of you are, are actively involved with safe families, which is temporary respite care for families and children who are in need. A number of you have even taken in kids through the foster care system. I've heard of a number of times where folks are just needing a place to stay. And they find a place to stay with somebody else in the church for a long time, for extended periods of time. And so in a lot of ways, we're modeling this hospitality as a church community. And it's a beautiful thing. And secondly, it's a part of God's character. So when we as a church are doing this, I think this is us modeling God's character of hospitality and welcoming in strangers. And not only welcoming them into his home, but adopting them, taking it a step further and bringing them not only just to share a meal around a table together, but bringing us into his family and declaring that now you are a fellow member of the household, that when you are in Christ, you're an heir with Christ, and so you're an officially adopted child of God. For some of us, that's even just a foreign concept to have, to think through what it would be like to not have that safety, security, that type of setting of knowing, of not knowing that you are loved in a home. The image that came to mind after first service was, uh, oh man, I think I saw this on a reel or something at some point, from Jerry Springer. Okay, you're like, Jerry Springer in a sermon reference. Where are you going? Okay, this is a last minute one, so I don't think this will get me in trouble, but whatever. Um, <laughs> so, 
I, I do not frequently watch Jerry Springer, or ever did, okay? Is, is it still on TV, by the way? Is anybody, whatever, who cares? I hope you don't know. Okay, so, the, so anyways, one of the guys who was like the enforcer, I think his name was Steve or whatever. He's a big, tough guy, right? His job is to kind of like scare the kids who have behavioral issues and kind of like scare them into shape, right? And he was talking to this one boy, and the kid was like probably 10 years old. It gets me every time I think of it. And he, in his like, he, he's like a drill sergeant type guy. He's like up in the kid's face. He's like, kid, would you want me to be your dad? Or something as he's yelling at him. And the kid goes, his eyes get really big, and he's like, yeah, I would love for you to be my dad, even though you're like playing this tough guy mode. Because the kid had never experienced what it's like to know that he's loved intrinsically for who he is, to have a father who loves him and cares for him and has welcomed him into his home. <laughs> and it just struck me that this kid, that is such a good picture of God welcoming us into his home. And for so many of us, we just don't quite grasp theologically how alien and foreign we were to the people of God until Jesus brought us near, Paul says in Ephesians, through the cross. And how God has adopted us. We were hopeless without God in the world, he says. But because of the cross, because of Jesus, he has brought us into his family and he has adopted us. And so when we reflect on that and reflect on what God has done for us in the cross through communion, which we partake and remember, together we should be moved to hospitality because that's how God treated us. And God took it even a step further to adoption and bringing us into his family to be a part of his household. And that's what we're remembering as we partake of communion together. The elements are up here. I'll spread them out onto the table invite you to come into the middle, grab the communion elements, there's two cups, and take them back to your seat. Go around the outside, back to your seat, and sit and hold on to them. And as you're holding on to these elements, just reflect on Christ's hospitality for you. Reflect on God's adoption of you into his family. That you were once without God, hopeless in the world, lost. But God has brought you into his family. He's given you unconditional love and acceptance. And it's out of that theology that then we can then move to being people who are hospitable, welcoming foreigners, strangers, people whom we are unfamiliar with. Lord Jesus, yet again, we thank you for your forgiveness, your redemption, your adoption of us, Lord that you've brought us into your family through the cross. Lord, all of our faith and trust is in you. And Lord, we thank you for giving us the Spirit of God to remind us, to unite us together in community. And Lord, to form in us the value of hospitality. So Lord, I pray as we reflect on that this week that you would move in our hearts, Lord, to be hospitable, to love others as you have loved us. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks for being here, you guys. Have a great week. Go in the peace of knowing that Christ has adopted you into his family.